Good morning, Ebenezer. How are you this morning? All right, we're going to try this. I want everybody on the count of three to smile, the biggest smile that you can smile. All right, you ready? One, two, three. Smile, smile, come on. There's a camera up here that's taking your picture right now. You just don't know it. Now, you know, that hurt a little bit, but you know what? There's something powerful about a smile, isn't there? You know, it's the difference, like sometimes you go to a restaurant and you walk up and you're going to order something and they go, what do you want? Then you, sometimes you go to other restaurants and they're like, well, hey, what do you, would you like to have? Big difference, isn't it? it? It builds you up. You know, I was sitting here thinking about that last song that we sang. And, you know, we were singing. I looked around. Some of you lifting your hands. We're singing. I could hear it. I could hear you guys singing. Those lyrics said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, how many of you know where that's from? A little bitty passage in Isaiah 6. And y'all know what Isaiah did when he heard the angels singing that? They fell, he fell prostrate before the Lord. The weight and the glory and the majesty of his name. His name is Jesus. And we just sang that. And so as we come into this time where we get to share in the word, you know what I want for you today? Is that you leave inspired and pumped up that we got to sit here and open this book and let it read us. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Just kind of put your finger there, and we're going to go to that in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I just want to say thank you. If you're here today, and you're visiting, or you're online and checking in with us, we're so glad that you chose be at Ebenezer today. If you're in the room, and you're our guest, thank you. We would love to get to meet you outside the back door here is our guest desk, and we'd love for you to stop by, introduce yourself, receive a free gift, and it's a good coffee mug. When we came a few weeks ago, Laura's like, I want to have one of those coffee mugs. And so we got a coffee mug. We're legit now, you know what I'm saying? We got a coffee mug at home. It says, Ebenezer, a place of hope or a place of coffee. It's either one. But thank you guys. We have, this, is, this is almost my first month here, and I feel like I've been here a year. It's so crazy, and I've loved every minute of it. You know, and so this week, there's been some really cool things at work. We've seen God do some amazing things. I've heard people talk about the new things they want to see in the year and what God's kind of leading you to do and some things you're studying, things you're reading. Um, but you know what lights my fire right this moment more than anything else is next Sunday. Next Sunday, I want you to say 3 o'clock. Next Sunday at 3 o'clock, we're going to be ordaining Paul Batchelor to the deacon ministry. And I can't tell you how exciting that is for me and for our church because here's the truth. We're not really making him a deacon. He's already been deaconing. What I know of Paul already is he has a servant's heart and he's making an impact in this community. All we're doing is just putting a stamp on that. But it's going to be a special moment and a special time. So what time next Sunday? 3 o'clock. And I want you to come back. Go eat lunch. And come back and celebrate as we get to ordain Paul. And I'm, it just, like I said, it just stokes my fire. Because what that means is we are seeing how our ministry can make a difference in this community. And serving is vital. Our deacons serve. They serve. That's what that word means. They give of themselves to reach people, to help people. Because we're a place of hope, right? And that's a big part of that. So we're in a series called Focus, and I'm taking a few weeks to kind of share with you what I believe are my core values. 
And remember, a core value is something you celebrate, you talk about, that drives the decisions that you make. And so last week I started with Scripture and I shared with you from Timoth- 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17, that following Jesus is hard and that continuing in Scripture leads to faith and wisdom and that application of Scripture leads to maturity. And the blanks I left out, didn't mean to do that, was that this idea, this bottom line was to focus on Scripture so you can know God. Focus on Scripture to know God. It's vital. The word vital means absolutely necessary, right? So when we say that Scripture is vital for our faith growth, it is vital. You can't do it without Scripture. And so this week, I want to continue in that same thing and share with you another focus. Another thing that I believe is very important to me, and it's a word that gets a little bit misused sometimes. And because we use it so much, I think it, it loses its punch. It loses its effectiveness and its specialness. It's the word grace. Guys, grace is very important to me. At a point in my life, and I'll share pieces of my testimony today, but at a point in my life, I was living in such a way where I thought I was perfect. I thought I was good. I thought I was smart. And I would take those things and I, and I put it in front of people because I wanted people to see that I had it all together that I'd want to make the straight A's. I wanted to be impressive. But you know what the irony was? Inside of my life, I didn't feel like I was worth anything at all. I didn't feel like I was good enough. I didn't feel like I was smart enough. I didn't think I was lovable or even likable. You know, Mark Lowry said one time, there's people in your life that you love that you don't like. (laughs) You ever heard that statement before? Then he goes on to say, come on, you go to Thanksgiving and Christmas too. But the point was, is that for me, here I am, and inside I'm like, I'm not good enough for anyone, but my life was driving me in such a way that I was like, here I am, look at me, look how good I am, look how smart I am, I just want your affection, I want your attention. And I was dead inside. What I didn't have was grace. I didn't give myself grace, I didn't live in grace, and I definitely didn't understand grace, And at 48 years old, I still don't understand grace. It blows my mind that the God of the universe who spoke us into existence loves us unconditionally. The word in Greek is charis. It appears 156 times in the New Testament. And 130 of those times it's translated as the word grace. The other times it's translated as favor or thanks But in this book that we're going to look in today, it appears 12 times. Two of the uses are at the beginning, at the end. When Paul introduces himself to the Ephesians and when he says his farewell. Grace defined who Paul was. And there's an article in in the Logos blog. Logos is is a Bible software. I love my Logos program. I've had it almost two decades, believe it or not. And I use it constantly. I found this article because I typed in definition of grace. Because I want to invite you today to forget what you know about grace. I want you to forget that you've ever read the passage that we're reading today. So that we can approach it fresh and new. And so they went through and kind of quoted a bunch of different authors. And I just kind of dumped it in here and thought I'd share these definitions with you. Because I want to know what grace is. And I want to live in that grace. So, So listen to this. It says this, quote, 
the briefest definition of grace is favor. Specifically, unmerited favor from God. So, so some of you in the room that may be young, unmerited means unearned. Or unmerited in the sense that you don't have a prestige. It's not honored to you. There's nothing you could do to earn the grace of God. So he goes on to say uh, in, in Tony Evans' book, The Grace of God, he, he defines it this way. The inexhaustible supply of God's goodness whereby he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. When was the last time you used the word inexhaustible in a sentence other than the energy you needed to watch a preschooler? Inexhaustible. Well, when you're done, you are exhausted. But it said inexhaustible supply of God's goodness or Dwight Moody's definition. A man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough today to last him the next six months. Some of us times we eat that much, don't we? Or take sufficient air into our lungs to sustain life for a week to come. We must draw on God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. In other words, when we talk about inexhaustible supply, we're talking about boundless store. Grace is simply the unmerited favor of God toward us based on his unconditional love. There is no bounds to God's grace. And so whether like me, if you're living in this vein where you're trying all this stuff to show how good you are, living in your flesh, glorifying your flesh, God loves you. Or if you're over here and you feel like the most worthless person in this room right now, the most unlovable, the most, um, the most un, <laughs> undeserving person, God loves you too. You cannot sin your way out of God's grace. I know you've heard that before, right? But I'm reminding you today, that God loves you no matter what. His caress, His grace is supplied by his agape, which is the unconditional love that God has for you and for me. So, in, with one of my favorite speakers, Chuck Swindoll, he said this about grace. The late pastor and Bible scholar Donald Barnhouse perhaps says it best. Love that goes up is worship. Love that goes out is affection. Love that stoops down Love that stoops down is grace. And why is that important? Because right now, where is Jesus? I mean, I we talk about metaphorically, Jesus is in my heart, but I hope most of you know, especially you kids, Jesus is not in your heart. Jesus is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, and is waiting, as the Bible says in Psalm 110, for God to make, an, make a footstool of his enemies. What lives inside of me, if I know Christ, is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is at a place of exaltation, a place of authority. And when it says that grace allows him to sit, stoop down and scoop us up, he does so from power and authority given to him by God the Father. You see, no one is in here today except by the grace of God. The very breath that you're breathing, the very food that you ate, the very car you drove has been all supplied at some point by God. And we're here in the grace, the unmerited favor of God. 
And that should drive us when we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It takes on a different perspective when we realize the majesty in which we stand under the power of God. And here's some points I want to share, some products that I want to share briefly that grace does in our life. Grace reveals the fullness of who God is. John 1, 16 says, For of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, stacked up. I, I used the metaphor last service that when you're making biscuits and you kind of fold the dough, same thing, grace upon grace has been given to us. And it reveals the fullness of God. Another thing that it produces is it's, it, grace is what justifies our sin in our guilt. Because we all stand guilty. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Because we're all sons of Adam and Eve. We have all inherited that sin nature. And whether you've committed one sin, ten sins, five sins, whether you've, you've just you misused a word or you've killed somebody, it's sin, right? It says in Romans 3, 24, being justified by, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Or grace gives us confidence. It gives us confidence. Romans 5, 2 says, through whom... Also, we obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Hey, listen, I love that I get to be a recipient of grace. But God's grace exists by his will and for his glory. And we get to receive that. Another thing that it does, is it calls out sin. Grace calls us out of sin. He says in Romans 6, 1 and 6, 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? God has, is bountiful in his grace. But are we to live that life that says, Well, I'm just going to keep on doing exactly what I was doing before because God loves me no matter what. That's a misuse of God's grace. He says in verse 2, May it never be. How do we who live, died to sin still live in how? Because God has called us out of that and to continue living in that is to lock ourselves up in sin rather than the freedom that grace brings and provides. And the last thing that it does, grace is sufficient for our weaknesses. Now I know in this room there's not a lot of you that are weak, right? That was a joke. I see some, I've known some strong men and some strong women, but everyone is weak. When we stand before God, we all fall short. And that's why Paul said that God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. When I'm real about who I am, God is most glorified. And it's because of his grace. It's in his grace that we have and we find our being. So I'd like to invite you right now to stand with me. Take your Bible and let's read together three verses. Again, I know you may be familiar with these verses, but let's pretend for just a moment that we're reading these fresh. It says in verse number 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself, it is the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, excuse me, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into your word, I pray, Father, as I said earlier, that you would examine us. And as we look at your grace, God, let it be transformational. Let us see this in such a new way that when we leave here today, we're not the same as when we walked in. Lord, touch this family, touch this church in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how is it that grace changes our life? I want you to think about that. How is it, how is it that grace can change your life and change my life? Well, in order to dig into these three verses, we need to back up. Because remember, I said there was 12 usage, uses of the word grace in this book. This book was written by Paul to address the church the subject of the church. In fact, he calls it the mystery that God had appointed him as an administrator of grace and had called him to explain this mystery. You've got to remember in the context where he is standing, there's this new idea. You've had the Jewish people, but now that Jesus has come and the new covenant has been instituted, now you have the birth of the church, the New Testament church, And so he's trying to explain a couple of things. First of all, the existence of this body now being the extension of Christ. Because the truth is is that by being saved by grace, you and I now are dispensers of grace. We are conduits through which grace flows through us so that it can impact those who are around us. So I hate to burst your bubble, but if you're not living a life of grace, grace may not have impacted your life. Let me repeat that again. If you're not living a life of grace, grace may not have changed you. When I was 20 years old and I came to that point where I realized that eternity was pretty big and I realized that I was living in this do-good mentality that because I had grown up in church and and I was doing good stuff over here, and I thought I could cover up my, my bad stuff with my good stuff. I was living in this false cycle of self-justification. Because here's the thing, every one of you in this room has an idea of what you think about yourself. And most of us think we're pretty good people. How often have you described somebody, they say, hey, do you know Bob? Yeah, he's a good old guy. And we'll use that word kind of flippantly that, well, he's, I'm good and you're good. But here's the problem. What happens when a good person does something wrong? It doesn't match up. It doesn't add up, does it? If I do something bad, and I think I'm this really good person, then I've got to do something good to cover up my bad. Why would I do that? So I can restore my goodness. I can restore my image. But the problem is, is my image is messed up. Charles Ryrie said that the image of God in us is defaced, but it's not erased. In other words, there's still an inkling of the image of God in us, but sin has so marred it that we've got this barometer inside of us that knows, you know, I need to be this way. I need to have this goodness about me, but it's just messed up. And and this cycle, can y'all be honest, is exhausting. You ever been on that wheel running and running and running, trying to prove how good you are. And you know what the litmus is usually when you're trying to be good? The people beside you. 
And when you live in a culture that celebrates sin, you don't really have a whole lot to compare yourself to. And then we come into a room like this, a place that is supposed to be of ministry, hope, and help, and encouragement. And you know what kills churches? When everybody's sitting around looking at the next person and the next person trying to decide who's the best. That's not grace. (laughs) That is not grace. And so Paul is beginning to, to, to build into this idea, you and I, are dead in our trespasses. Ephesians 2 is a great explanation of the process of salvation. But he begins in chapter 1, and he begins to talk about the triune God. In fact, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. One whole sentence. Paul was the master of run-on sentence. Jonathan Edwards was second. And he begins to explain that. He begins to explain the place of the Father beginning in verse, number, in verse number four, and he begins to talk about the son in verse number seven, and then he, be, he ends that with verse number 12. Why is that important? Because he's preparing us, he's preparing us so that we can be the church God intends us to be. When you get down into verse number 17, Paul begins to pray for the church, that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, that their heart would be enlightened so that they would know what is the hope of the calling, the riches of glory. And why is that knowledge important? Why is it important? We talked about scripture last week. We didn't know who God is, but why is it important in this context? Well, look at this next verse, 20. He brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him, where? In the heavenly places. Remember I said grace was him stooping down and pulling us up. Jesus is able to do that and to do that well because he's been where we've been. Jesus has lived the lives that we have lived. And yet he's still willing, after living the life that he lived, to reach down and scoop you and I up. That's love, guys. That is absolute love. That when I bury myself up in the muck of life, when I'm in the mud and I'm stuck and I've done it again, God still loves me and is willing to give me however many chances I need so that I can dwell and walk with him. And so in verse number six, he, talks, he begins to talk about this grace. He talks about through Christ in his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then in verse 7, he talks about how that we have been forgiven because of the riches of his grace. His bountiful supply. That's the power of grace. But then in chapter 2, in the very first verse, Paul just goes for the juggler. You're dead. The whole tone of the book begins to change. He talks about the triune God and talks about the marvelousness of his of, his, of this knowledge and this wisdom that we gain. And he said, well, you're dead. Verse number one of chapter two says, you are dead in your trespasses. I passed a quadrillion number of deer this morning. I think I got the memo that hunting is over. I, they were everywhere. I mean, even in, I, I was on Rose Road and they were just a half a mile from here poking their head out of a, a pine thicket. They were everywhere. But if you've ever hit a deer and killed it, it's dead. 
You ain't helping it. You ain't bringing it back to life. It's dead, right? You can do all you want to. You can go and make its legs jiggle. You can slap it across the face. It ain't coming back. And that's you and me. We were dead in our sin. Before The Walking Dead was a movie or a TV show, we are The Walking Dead. Why? Because look what he starts to say. We were dead, and that was the way you formerly walked. You walked according to the world. You lived according to the prince of the power of the air and the sons of disobedience. You walked formerly and lived just like them. Why? Because you were in nature. By your nature, you were children of wrath. That's one through three. All this other stuff sounded really good till one through three. We stink. I'm just kidding. We're not over. We do. We stink. We don't measure up. And what Paul's going to begin to unpack is this idea that by grace, our life will be changed. And so from 4 through verse number 7, he begins to talk about how God, being rich in mercy and his great love, he made us alive with Christ, who is where again? Seated at the right hand of God in his power and his authority. And that's the one with whom we have a personal relationship with. So he gets to verse number eight. And I want to share with you three ways that grace changes our life. The first one is this, if you want to follow along in your study guide. Grace provides the gift of life. I'm going to go on, wait a minute. How does that change your life? Because he gives you a new one. He gives you a new one. Listen to verse eight again. For by grace, you have been saved. Now we can't see it too much in here But the word have is in the present tense involving an ongoing action, okay? Like I'm spinning my hands now. I have spun my hands. I'm done. That's perfect tense, which is what the word saved is. So you and I are existing in the fact that I have been saved. Perfect tense means it's been completely completed and it has an ongoing effect. You and I, because of grace, have been saved. And it's through faith that this happens. And faith has to have an object. And that object is Jesus Christ. See, you and I were dead. We formerly walked that way. We formerly lived that way. We were children of wrath. But because God made us alive and raised us up and seated us with Christ, He's given us a new life. He's given us a fresh start. Think of it like this. Tony Evans said, if grace is what God deposited for you, faith is the only way you get to make a withdrawal. That's the means by which you and I are able to tap into this grace. We fix our eyes on the one who who died for our sins and we trust him. We entrust our lives to him. Like I trust this stage. I've walked out on this platform a couple of times and I gotta be honest, when I get to about right here, I get to thinking, man, this thing's gonna flip forward in a minute. But I have entrusted my body to this platform. That's what faith is. I've entrusted my life to Jesus Christ and by his power, by his grace, he then has saved me. And that is the life in which I live. Now, now notice this. He said, and that is not of yourself. The, the, the demonstrative pronoun that is referring to this process of salvation that he has started talking about in verse number one. Now, some scholars believe maybe 
he was talking about faith, but they don't equal in gender in the Greek. They don't, they're not the same word. I really personally believe he is talking about you were dead, he's made you alive, and this is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. We just celebrated Christmas. And the definition of a gift is this. Something that belongs to me that I give freely to someone else and I take my hands off of it. It no longer belongs to me. And that's the gift of God that Jesus Christ has given to us. Romans 6.23 talks about the same kind of thing. For the wages, the sin, talk about what you earned, you and I have earned death. All the do-goodedness that I thought was earning me this prestige was earning me death. All of the sins in my life, the things that I was doing over here, the bad stuff I wanted to cover up was earning me death. And you and I are no different. We are earning death. That's what we deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives, a, gives it to us, but he can't give what he doesn't have. That's why Paul emphasized that Jesus was raised from the dead and then exalted into the heavens. If he was raised from the dead, then guess who else he can raise from the dead? You and me. And that's the day that we're all waiting for. We come in here and we glorify God and we call out to him, but we are longing for the day when Christ is going to come back and take us home. We're only visitors in this world. Don't ever forget that. Yeah, I love my home. That's where you kick your shoes off. Home is where your heart is. We talked about that weeks and weeks ago. But our home is heaven. As good sometimes as this world can be, in, in the midst of darkness, heaven is our home. And that's what we long for. And for me, that day, on April 11th, 1995, that, that was the humbling thing that happened when I realized that God was calling me out of this cycle of trying to prove how good I am, covering up all this muck that was in my life. And he said, you know what, I just want to give you a free gift. And I want to give you a new life. And maybe you're here today and you have, you've been on this rat race, this cycle where you've tried hard and hard and hard to prove how good you are. To prove to the world that you don't need anybody else, that you are good and sufficient in your goodness. Can I tell you, God is inviting you to rest. To place your trust in Christ, to lay all that down because His goodness, His righteousness it's what you want to be clothed in. Or maybe you are in this room and you're over here and you say, I'm the scum of the earth. God couldn't love somebody like me. I've been in church 40 years and nobody knows the life that I've lived outside of here. Can I tell you, God is ready to give you the free gift of forgiveness. And you don't need to go get your life right. You just need to make a step toward Him. You know what, if you go out and start trying to get your life right, you're just doing this over here and you're still reaping death on your life. What God wants to do is give you peace. Second point here is in verse number 9. Grace produces humility. Grace produces humility. Because listen, listen, listen to what he said. This is not the result of works so that no one may boast. Now there's a, there's a parallel going on here. You've got, for grace you have been saved, that parallels with the gift of God. But then you also have not of yourself, not of works. Not of yourself, not of works. No one can save themselves and no one can do enough to save themselves. Why? Because then that produces boasting. 
And that is not something in which we can do. The only thing that we can boast in in regard to our saving is Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce said this, if Abraham was justified by work, he would have something to brag about. Abraham left his country longing for land and longing for kids. But the Bible says Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness and was the doorway by which he was able to enter into that relationship with God. So when we string this together, we were dead, but God saved us by grace, his unmerited favor, and this was life-changing for me. When I realized I didn't need to brag in myself, I had nothing to brag about. Even to this day, I don't have anything to brag about. I brag about my kids and my wife. But in myself, I have nothing to brag about but the grace of God. And if I will keep my focus on that, it'll keep my eyes off myself. I was free. I know in grace I'm free to mess up. But I'm also free free to choose to seek to please God. In grace, I'm free to fall short. But I'm also free, free to choose the one who makes up my difference. In grace, I was free to sin. I am still free to sin. But I'm also free to repent, to turn my life around. I'm free. But when I live in these two worlds where I'm trying to prove how good I am or indulging myself in sin, I'm sowing to death. I want to be free, don't you? Jeremiah said it like this. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. And let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and, underst- and knows and understands the Lord. That I, the Lord, is the one who exercises loving kindness, justice, righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So what do we do with it? Make sure that we know we're saved by grace alone. Make sure that we give praise to God for what he's done alone. Make sure that our boasting has the right focus And make sure that our saving wasn't wasted. Because we are dispensers of grace, which leads me to the third point. Grace prepares us to serve. Verse number 10 again says this. For we are his, I love this, this is one of my favorite Greek words, poem. Poema. It means to make or do, is the word. But it's the word we get poem from. You are are God's beautiful literature. You are God's masterpiece. You are his best artwork. You are his fine china. That's who you are. How do we know that? Because we have been recreated in Christ for good works. That's the end result. We're not doing works to cover up our scum. We're not doing good works to cover up our mess. We're doing good works because that's what recreated people do. And when we find our lane of serving, we find our lane of growth. God invites you and me to serve one another and serve this world, not so we can check off a box, but because then grace is flowing through us. Guys, I believe wholeheartedly, when you begin to understand the grace of God, there's nothing that you wouldn't be willing to do for somebody beside you. Nothing. The hand that you'd be willing to hold and the person that you'd be willing to walk through life with, nothing would hold you back if you begin to tap in to the riches of his grace. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17, one of my first memory verses. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Come on, guys. Y'all know what it's like to sit in a new car. It's got leather in it. This is my new Bible. I bought it back a few months ago. And every time I get it out, I smell it. I know that's weird. I love the smell of this leather. It's buffalo hide. And I'm telling you, it smells good. But guys, I want the world to smell the new on me. I want the world to see the new in me. And I may have been a Christian since I was 20 years old. I'm going to tell you what, I want it to be as new as it was 20 years ago. I don't want to get over my saving. You know what I'm saying? I want God to raise me up and do something in me that I can't do on my own. And guess what I want for you? I want the same thing. God has saved us to give us a new life. He has introduced us into this humility where God is able to use my life, but he's prepared us to serve. And to me, that's the power of grace. That's the power that God can do in, in of your life. And now you can see why well, I love grace. And I want to continue learning what grace means. John Newton, here's that last blank before I tell you about John Newton. Focus on grace to make a difference. If I'm going to focus on Scripture so I know God, I want to focus on grace so I can make a difference. John Newton, who was known as the great blasphemer, he was the son of a sailor and eventually became a sailor himself and participated in the 1700s in the slave trade. And he was on a ship one, 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 one season, and the ship was about to sink. They had been days in the, in the ocean and, and battered by the waves of a storm for, for, for about a week. And on March 21st, 1748, just like it was yesterday. No, it wasn't. That was over 300 years ago. John Newton remembered remembered this day as being something specific. He said this, On that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of those deep waters. You see, he knew he had been living in a place he shouldn't have been living. He had done, in fact, he had done some things that would make sailors be ashamed. That's what they said in the literature. But here's the thing. 57 years later, after he had given his life to Christ, he said this, Not well able to write, but I endeavor to observe the return of this day, March 21st, with humiliation, with prayer, and with praise. The author said this, Only God's amazing grace could and would take a rude, profane, slave-trading sailor and transform him into a child of God. And Newton never ceased to stand in awe of that work in his life. He said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I'm not what I used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so January 1st, 1773, as he was preaching the text, 1 Chronicles 17, 16 through 17, which says this, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? The next week, Newton penned these words. Amazing grace. Listen, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Did you hear what he did? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's powerful. And God's grace, the same grace that rescued that sailor, 
is here to rescue you as well. So I'm going to invite Caleb to come on up and get ready to, to lead us in a last song. But before we do, I'm, I'm going to invite you to do something. I don't care if you've been claimed to have been a Christian 20, 40, 60, or 80 years. If God hasn't changed your life, God hasn't saved your life. And I don't want you to leave this room today without acknowledging that you are a sinner. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to take your sins away, to forgive your sin, and was raised again that he could give you eternal life. There is such a thing called false conversion. And if that's you, and God's not actively working in your life, God wants to right now. Don't leave this place today. Whether you think you've been saved or you are lost, if you're lost, I'm going to be standing up here toward the front. I would love to talk to you. In fact, here's what I'm going to tell you. Maybe today you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm running that rat race. Even as a Christian, I'm trying to show people how good I am. And I'm tired of running. I'm tired of trying to prove to the world how good I am rather than basking in the goodness of who he is. There's an altar up here. And an altar is where you erect to pray. Maybe you need to come and pray for yourself. Maybe you need to come and pray for somebody else. I don't care what it was, but guys, I want Ebenezer to have an open altar. I want this to be a consecrated place where you can come and pray for yourself or come and pray for others. And so while we're singing this, this song, if you want to come forward and pray, come. If you need to come forward and talk to somebody, come. I'm right here. Brother Fred's right here. Crosby's right here. He's going to be at the front. We're here. This is, this, is the, this is the second service. Other than lunch, we have nowhere else to be. So would you stand with me? And Father, as we're standing, we're asking, Lord, that you would do a work in our heart, to do a work in our life, God, that if we have forgotten the goodness and the power of your grace, Lord, let it be rekindled afresh and anew today that when we go out of here, we will extend the grace to others that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.